You're listening to the Leadership Jam Session Podcast, the place where you'll get to hear leaders at all levels of management share their practical solutions to the management challenge you face every day. So let's get ready to jam. I'm your host, Rob Fonte. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Leadership Jam Session. Today's guest is Randy Broad, who is a highly successful entrepreneur. Randy is the founder and CEO of Opal Enterprises, a business he started in his basement over 30 years ago, which grew into a multi-million dollar business. Now, his business first started as a video production company, but in order to survive, Randy had to continuously change and adapt his business model, which evolved over the years into other offerings and services. In fact, Randy's leadership journey is not only a story of survival, both professionally and personally, which we'll talk about, but it's also a story of having to reinvent himself time and time again. Randy's also the author of the Amazon best-selling book called It's an Extraordinary Life. Don't miss it. Randy, welcome to the Leadership Jam Session. Thank you. What a nice introduction. Are you ready to jam? I'm ready. I got my jamming shoes on. All right. Well, and you and I have known each other for a long time now, almost 10 years, I think. And uh, we'll, we'll share that story at the end of the podcast. Otherwise, we will never leave that topic. I'm with you. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your leadership journey. And you have a, a phenomenal story to share. So let's start with your, your business. Now, as a startup, you had 40 consecutive quarters of profitability, which is almost unprecedented in a startup. Why don't you share with our listeners who your first and probably most important client was for you? A little company here in Seattle called Microsoft. <laughs> and I, um, I had been working in Los Angeles. I started, I went down there and worked in the film business for a few years. Uh, I, had a, I had a bug and I had to just get that out of my way, I think, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, but I went down there and I learned a fair amount. I mean, it was, I can honestly say, I doubt that I would have been as successful in my business had I got not gone down there and done what I did in um, the film business and learned what I learned as far as hustling. Um, that is about as brutal of a business as you can imagine. And uh, it really started right there. And I was down there for a few years and I did everything from product placement to stunt skiing to being Jeff Daniels stunt double. Um, I mean, it was just, I was all over the place, but it was a lot of fun. And like I say, I just really learned to network and how to, for lack of a better word, get things done. Um, just survival. I mean, I always tell people I went down there to be an actor and I never had to wait tables. So that was my success story. <laughs> anyway, um, I, came, I came back to Seattle in 1990 uh, and I landed very quickly at Microsoft. Just you know, I'd heard about them. They'd gone public about three years prior, but I didn't know much about them. They were moving at such a fast pace. It was mind boggling. And, uh, I mean, and you, I, I can't even explain you'd walk into somebody's office. They'd say, Randy, I've got this to do. Um, can you do it? I've got a hundred thousand dollars and it's gotta be done in a month. Okay. Wow. And you'd lock out the door and that's, that was the world. And, um, and like I say, at 1990, they were just buzzing along and it was almost impossible to keep up with them. Well, and, uh, as the business was growing, the uh, Microsoft and, you know, the environment was changing and I know you've talked about it on several times with me, how you had to adapt 
change your entire business model. Is that right? Correct. And it happened several times. It was, it was an exciting time. And the thing that, you know, and I'll get to this either and later is that, um, we were working so fast and, and things were changing so quickly. You didn't have time to even realize what was going on. I mean, it was, it was that frantic and their business was changing rapidly and they'd bring, you know, they'd bring in somebody new and they could completely change your business in a nanosecond. Uh, and to give you an example, I used to work through most of the event team and they got in a new CFO and he decided that that was not one of their core competencies. So they let every single person in the event team go. So I lost my entire client base in one week. Um, needless to say, that was, you know, daunting at the time, but what I, what, what I would say where I, one of the, for lack of a better, one of my, um, skill sets, I guess for, was I was able to seize where I saw the opportunity. So with them getting rid of the entire event team, that meant they did, wasn't that they weren't going to be doing events anymore. What they were going to do is outsource it. So just suddenly shifted from doing video production to doing events and producing the entire event. And then you could hire the production crew, you know, as needed and mark it up. So that was kind of the, the drill at the time. And that evolved into uh, what became my real core business. But again, a lot of that, you know, there's all those sayings about making, you know, you know, luck versus skill and you know there's both and um lucky that we were there where we were at the right time um but then the skill set is applying when that presents itself let's be honest a lot of people struggle with change uh, very comfortable in their ways and i've seen many leaders sometimes struggle uh, and even business owners uh, struggle and fall into the trap of of not being able to see the changes that are coming or the opportunities that lie ahead. And it sounds like to me, that was probably one of the biggest keys to your success and being able to continue to grow your, your company. Absolutely, Rob. And, uh, the, the saying that I would always, I, I, I guarantee you, I said this more than once. The one thing that's constant is change and especially in the world that we are living in. So just be aware of that. And I want you to, I mean, I was not a micromanager at all. Um, I really laid out, you know, here's the job, here's what's required. Um, but then I really let people just do their job. And, um, you know, we, like I say, we'd have our weekly meetings, but I, and a lot of what we did, I mean, it was very much team oriented. These, they, they had to, because everybody had their own special task and it all intertwined. So it had to be, the team had to be a team. And again, I was extremely fortunate that the people I had throughout um, were very good at that. Was there anything that they did that to help complement you? I mean, we talked about how what your strengths were. Was there anything oh, that they made me look good? <laughs> well, of course, that's what your employees are supposed to do, right? That's why we hire top talented employees. Yeah, I mean, it was really obvious. I mean, um, I had clients that would specifically ask for 
individuals in my organizations to be on their project. Hmm. So, you know, clearly they were building their own relationships and demonstrating that they knew what they were doing and following through. And so again, I didn't have any play in that whatsoever. I mean, but, but you know, I mean, people, I wasn't the guy really doing all the work by any means. So the, the team was responsible for making me look good and they were hiring us a company, not me, an individual. Well, and I think that's fair to, I think that probably applies in any organization, whether you own your own business or you're managing a team in, a, in any given department within an organization. But as you think back, and again, your business grew rapidly over the years, and you had several employees that, that you had to manage, what are some of the techniques or approaches that, on how you approached your team that led to your success? Well, I would say we started with values, and I was really clear about letting people know what my values were as a business. Um, what at the first and foremost was integrity and that we would be, the client always came first. Doesn't matter what, if they, if they weren't happy, they didn't have to pay. I took really the Nordstrom approach, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, I mean, I grew up in Seattle with Nordstrom and I remember that and I remember being able to take things back that I had worn out and because they fell apart or something and they didn't even squawk. And so I really borrowed that from being a kid and just said, this is how we're going to run this business. And you make sure um, at the end of the day, you feel really good that your clients are taken care of. That's my, that was my mantra. Mm-hmm. And I hired people that I trusted that could do that. And, and then I sat back and trusted them to do it. And it worked out really well. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, great, great leaders do provide that vision and they provide the values and then they, they have the lead by it too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I had several, not a lot, but we had a couple of clients that things didn't work out the way they should. And I just walked in there and said, look, we didn't deliver to the level that I was expecting we would. And, um, this one's on us and nine times out of 10, well, there weren't 10 times, but 90% of them, um, that I did have to do that. Uh, usually says, don't worry about it, Randy. Um, well, let's do it again and we'll, we'll figure it out. So I just get back to customer satisfaction being number one. That was just, we, I, you know, I, I led by example and, but, you know, and it wasn't like we sat around in the room and, you know, drilled this into everybody's head every single week. It's just, that's, but it comes across in the conversations. We had weekly meetings where we talked to, you know, our planning meetings, um, where we were, what we were doing, all the different projects. And, you know, I mean, I can almost guarantee that just about every single one of those, they would cause us. So tell me, how is, how is Beverly thinking about that? Beverly being the client or, you know, how is Lisa on that? Is she good? And it was, you know, it was just those types of things, you know, and, or if there was something that was maybe somewhat contentious, you'd say, well, where does the client stand on that? If you had a conversation. So this just, I mean, it was just, daily this is how it was and you know so many of us come from the uh the corporate side and we have large corporations that that we work for again your business while is is very highly successful you're dealing with a smaller organization nimble and you know it sounds like to me that even some of the same foundational leadership principles regardless of the size of the organization still apply and you talked about creating the values leading by example 
interesting to even hear, you know, you're, you're still having weekly meetings with, with your folks. I am curious, you know, because you were more on the vendor side, partnering with Microsoft right. and, and other companies that, that provided opportunities to partner with, with other large companies too, Dell and HP as well. Did you have any issues or challenges with retaining employees uh, and losing them to competitors or things like that? How did you keep them motivated and engaged? I paid them really well. <laughs> um, uh, Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah. Um, well, like I say, we were doing some pretty unique stuff. I didn't have so to answer your first question, I did not have much challenge with attrition. Mm-hmm. Um, and of all the time that I was there, I only, I only fired one person. Okay. Um, I had a couple of leave because the business changed and they didn't fit. But, um, the, yeah, I only, like I say, I had one unfortunate situation where I actually did have to fire somebody and it was due to a, she broke our trust. And once you break somebody's trust, it's really difficult to build that back, especially the way it was done. And, um, so I was fortunate in that regard. And I had fantastic people working for me. How difficult was that for you? Because I think we, we, you shared with me one time that, that prior to you know, starting your business, you really didn't manage people before, right? No, I never had managed anybody ever. And no, I mean, it just kind of, look, again, I, I would really just kind of boil it down into a world of necessity. Again, we were working so rapidly, the, mo- the business was changing so quick, and the client's needs were pretty extensive, and it was either you were in a do-or-die situation, and um, I chose to do, and, um, and it worked out. You know, and I think a lot of it was fa- fairly innate. My dad was a, had a huge influence on me, and um, he was a manager his entire life at Boeing. Um, and he was a very skillful manager. And so he managed his people and his, and his kids <laughs> with the equal audacity. And so, you know, he really, um, he was proficient and I learned a lot just from listening to my father. Well, it is interesting how many of us are shaped and molded by others in terms of how we manage and, and lead people. And in my professional world, I had some not so good managers as well, but, um, so to your point, you know, you, you listen and learn and, and apply what, what you thought would work for you um, moving forward. Uh, talking about that person you had to let go, how difficult was that for you? Considering what she did, it wasn't that hard. Um, she, she basically lied and lied to me, lied to the team, lied to the customer that she had done something um, in raising money and she didn't. And I only, the only way I could find it out was because I called the client who she said she had actually sold. And then when I went and confronted her and I said, well, I need to see the contract, she couldn't find it. And so it was obvious. And, um, and she had demonstrated a few other weakling things, um, prior, but not to that degree, but that was as egregious as it gets in my world. And, um, and again, it was so unnecessary that all she had to do was just had nothing to do with her compensation or anything. It just, she was just trying to, I guess, make it look like she was doing something that she wasn't. But again, if you can't be clean in that regard, 
um, especially at something of that magnitude, it's you're, you're in the wrong place. So going back to your comment before about, you know, you paid your employees well, do you think it was only that? No, I think we had a, I think we had a, we had a, I mean, it was, again, we were moving pretty quickly. We traveled all over the world. Um, we were engaged in fun things. Um, you know, I, they had a, a good health care plan. I did that before Obamacare was um, required. Um, and, you know, they had fairly liberal expense accounts. I didn't, you know, sit down and go drill through their expense accounts. And again, I, was, I mean, we were doing well, and I thought it was important to, you know, pass that along. So, um, you know, if we weren't doing as well as we were, uh, then it probably would have been different, but we were. All right. So I know that, you know, things were moving very fast for you, uh, as well as, as Microsoft and how you had to adapt over the, over the years. Um, and again, you've had a lot of success. I mean, including, I think it was your company that was responsible that Microsoft hired to film Bill Gates's wedding, right? That, that was in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> And I was, I mean, I, I want to make, make it clear. It was not my company per se. I was, I was as a working as an independent in video production and I was involved in that. The bigger piece of that video, well, it wasn't so much his wedding. It was interviewing all of his friends, close friends who he'd grown up with and going to school and all this kind of his dad and everybody else. And this was this pre wedding video that was and that was the very interest. That was a very cool project. Mm. You know, obviously things were moving at a fast pace, as you talked about. So if you had the ability to go back and change anything, what would that be? The number one thing, Rob, would be that we would have slowed down a little bit um, in that environment and maybe taken more time to celebrate our wins and acknowledge that, that that's what we were doing. Um, but we were, you know, we just jumped from one thing to the next and, and I'll be really, I mean, I can honestly tell you that I don't want to use the word fear, but I, I always felt, you know, we were, you know, one, one, one bad move, you know, and things could be done, you know? And, and so I was. You know, cause it, again, it happened so quickly. And, and again, we just, you, you, we didn't even really realize what we were in because we were just, it was going so, so rapidly. Um, so it was, so to, yeah, again, to look back, it would be slow down, um, and enjoy more of the moment as opposed to constantly be looking ahead as to where we're trying to go. You know, I mean, I felt the responsibility not only for my employees, but for their families. Um, you know, most of them were young, um, people with small children. And in some cases they were the breadwinner. And I, so it wasn't just me and my family. Um, I felt the responsibility for them and it, it took us, it, it, it definitely took a strain on me. And, um, and that was a, and that and that didn't go away, and I didn't deal with that very well. I wish that that would have been something that I could have and possibly dealt with a lot better. And I, and if I could have cloned myself uh, during the process at a 
quicker time, then that would have probably been beneficial as well. But I didn't. Well, I think that's great advice to give to all leaders out there. That, And I see this a lot. In fact, I was just with the group last week and did a team survey with them. And that was one of the things that, that came up was the ability to acknowledge and celebrate the small wins. And it's something that comes up all the time. And, and we know this. And yet we, again, to your point, for a variety of reasons, we sometimes fail to just slow down a little. Now for you, you reached a point in your life where you were forced to slow down. Yeah, I wasn't listening to my to it, and um, so my body did it for me. I actually um, got shingles, and this was about 2004, 2003, somewhere in there. And um, I got, I was quite sick. I got it in my throat, and um, I mean, you could have drawn a line right down the middle of my throat, and one side was fine, and the other side was all blistered. Um, I've never been sicker in my life, believe me. And, um, and as you know, I'm a stage three cancer patient. Cancer was a walk in the park compared to that. And, uh, the interesting thing that I, again, that I did take away from it, I didn't think about it at the time, but I made my entire living speaking, you know, talking to customers, talking to my team, you know, that was, that was what I did. And like I say, I wasn't listening and I was stressed to the max and my body basically just said, well, if you're not going to shut yourself down, we will. And I really do believe that's exactly what happened. And I was pretty much flat on my back for three months and I did not. And I ended up, I went back to work too soon. And I also made some really bad decisions after going back to work, um, you know, from a business standpoint. All right, and for my listeners out there, Randy briefly mentioned this, but this is one of the other extraordinary things about Randy is that he is a cancer survivor, lung cancer survivor of how many years now, Randy? It'll be 12 in March, so I'm thinking ahead. <laughs> so right now it's 11, which um, stage three non-small cell lung cancer, inoperable. Uh, I Latest statistics are about, between five and eight percent live five years. Wow, that's just incredible. Yeah, I've been called an anomaly. <laughs> <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> I've been called worse. Yeah, I mean it's. Um, yeah, uh, it's 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 been an interesting ride. You know, I talked earlier about values. You know, um, my personal values at the top of the game were wealth was number one, building wealth, and you know, love and adventure and this and that, the next family was further down the list. Not far, but just, you know, I just want you to know that that was my priority because we were in, you know, moving at a very rapid rate and everybody likes making money and doing new things and all that kind of good stuff. And so, like I say, that's where my value chain sat. Now, the interesting thing is the day that I was told you have cancer, I remember that's vividly sitting on the bench with the paper on it in the hospital. And the minute that doctor said that, my value chain flipped just in a nanosecond. And my kids became the number one priority and wealth went to the bottom of the list. 
I get clients all the time that, that approach me, whether it's in workshops or employees themselves and talk about work-life balance. And, you know, again, this is just my, my professional opinion in terms of, of coaching and, and doing leadership courses that there is really no course that anyone can offer in terms of when it comes to work-life balance. It's a personal choice that people make. A lot of people want to blame organizations or use a lot of excuses as crutches. But at the end of the day, each and every one of us has to make that decision on what that looks like. I agree 100%. You know, you talked about how your priorities then changed overnight. Uh, and again, it, it, it just speaks to also your ability to just continuously reinvent yourself. You know, I know you say you're an anomaly, but I do think that, that it just speaks to your your drive, your ability to to just be able to reinvent yourself. And, and that experience kind of forced you to also write a book, a book that's done very well. You're correct. Well, thank you. Yeah, it, um, that, by the way, that was one of the most cathartic experiences of my life, sitting down and actually writing the book. And I can almost guarantee you, had I not gotten cancer, that book wouldn't exist. But having a 13 and a 15 year old at the time and being told I had a year, maybe a year and a half to live, uh, following my treatment, I, and having worked the way I had through their young lives and not that I was an absentee father, I wasn't, but I missed some key moments with my kids and I even wrote about it in the book yep. and I felt that there were things that I had learned in my life that if I wasn't around, they would have a reference. So the book is not about cancer, but it's about living. It's about life. And it's about things that I learned personally um, that stood out. And again, I mentioned my father, and that was, again, one of the driving forces is that I was sitting there and facing the possibility of my kids at a very young age not having a dad. And I couldn't even imagine that because my dad was so instrumental in my life. And so that was really the driving force. And I just to give you an idea, when you have a um, (laughs) kind of a life lifelong or excuse me, a lifetime uh, deadline that I was given, you'd be amazed at what you can get done in a very quick period of time. So I remember starting, I started writing right after Thanksgiving in 2008 and I was holding a finished copy published book in my hand on March 15th. Wow. Well, and for my listeners out there, uh, we will put the link to Randy's book. It's an extraordinary life. Don't miss it. We'll put the link in, in the show notes. And I do want to point out that, that Randy's book does provide some really good, thoughtful insights and perspectives. I remember, uh, and at that time when, when I met you and my boys, and I read the book, my boys were, I have twin boys, my boys were, I guess, about uh, eight or nine. And there was one, uh, there was one, there was one moment in the book that you talked about, uh, and in Seattle, how rare it is to get snow, and you were working from home, and it, and it happened to snow, and Kid, your kids were outside playing and, and your wife, uh, you know, your kids were calling you to come outside and you were trying to wrap up stuff. And by the time you were done working, you got up and realized the snow just melted and, and you missed it. And 
for years after every time and i live in new jersey and unfortunately for some reason new jersey seems like it's the new chicago it snows here all the time now but anytime it snowed and my boys were home i would always think of that and make sure that i didn't miss going outside with them uh that is the hallmark chapter in the book in my opinion and in fact that's how i came up with the title it's an extraordinary life and dash don't miss it and that chapter is actually titled missing it because it was a very profound moment in my life because again i put work before a once in a lifetime experience to have with my children uh they were quite young and we lived at the bottom of a fairly steep hill we got this great snowstorm and i missed it and because i was on email and talking to employees the thing about seattle if you get a half an inch of snow the place shuts down and so everybody was at home and we were working remotely and da 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 da. but again if you were to give me a million bucks i couldn't remember what was in any one of those emails but i can tell you the what the weather what the what the wind felt like on that specific day i could tell you what my kids were wearing i could tell you how the dog was running around barking and wagging its tail um i can feel the snow under my feet because I did walk out into it only like I say to see that it was over and um so what does that say well and and you um you eventually did sell your 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 business but over the years you continue to be involved in many different things and other businesses and you're a speaker as well so as I said that there's that theme that that you continuously to reinvent yourself yeah I mean I think that's just something that is required in life. And because of, again, we get back to the word change. Um, it's constantly changing and, you know, we have to adapt to the changing environment. And if not, you get left by the wayside, but I, um, yeah, uh, the cancer has opened a whole new realm of life for me. And, and I'm, and the latest venture that I'm working on is, a. I actually started a uh, program called C Sessions, and C stands for cancer, and um, it is all about communication between physicians and, or I should say, healthcare providers and cancer patients. I do a lot, as you know, I do a lot of patient advocacy work. In fact, I'm kind of a cancer lightning rod. If anybody that I know knows anybody that gets diagnosed with cancer, I get an email or a Facebook outreach or a phone call. And, you know, asking what to do, where to go, how to do this, how to do that. All right. Well, we're almost out of time. So I've got one last question for you, Randy. Do you remember how we met? <laughs> Very vividly. <laughs> uh, now, l- let me rephrase you know, that. again. L- let me rephrase that. Do you remember how you almost got me fired? <laughs> <laughs> Kim, if you're listening, you did the right thing to not do that. Um, <laughs> yes. So getting back to leadership. Again, as when I was newly diagnosed and told that I didn't have long to live, one of the things that I did was take my kids out of school and take them on trips, just uh, mostly one-on-one. One trip was I took Riley skiing. We went to Utah and we went to a mountain that neither one of us had ever skied. And on the last run of the day, he made a series of really bad choices. I almost lost my son and he was 15 at the time. Well, that again was a pretty big wake up call. And I remembered years prior having played golf with, he actually was a Novartis 
district manager here in Seattle. We were we, we played at this golf course that I was a member at. And <clears throat> one day when we were golfing, he shared about the Gettysburg retreat. And he says, you know, I've been to a lot of these leadership training programs. He says, this one is by far the best. And having been to Gettysburg as a kid and being a Civil War aficionado, it just stuck with me. So on coming home from that ski trip, and it was life-changing for Riley, and it was life-changing for me, just so you know. And I got on the phone, and I looked up the Gettysburg program, and I called and actually talked to Steve, the owner. And I said I wanted to bring my son uh, and I to attend one of his programs. And he says, well, we're honored that you would. I gave him the story, and he says, well, I'm honored that you would like to do that. He said, I just want you to know we don't do onesie-twosies. We only do groups. And he says, but that said, every once in a while, I'll have a group that will allow outsiders to audit. So as long as you're flexible on your dates, that could work. I said, sure, let me know. Well, about three months later, I get a phone call from his assistant saying, hey, we've got an opening here in August. If you and your son would like to attend, you're welcome. Booked a ticket into DC, got a driver to take us up, drop us off, got there in the parking lot at the, I think it was the Mead Mansion or something like that, wherever Mead had his headquarters, which is now where they, you know, the rooms were. And and for those who don't know Mead, he was the general on the union side. And there was a bus sitting there right there in the in the parking lot. And we immediately, we didn't even have a chance to go to the room. We just got on the bus. And I told Riley getting in, I said, hey, let's make sure, you know, we're guests. Let's just be quiet. And so we went all the way to the back of the bus, sat down, and there was, the bus was completely jammed full and everybody was, was talking. And <laughs> <laughs> the two gentlemen to my left turned around, they go, um, and who might you be? <laughs> I told him, hi, I'm Randy. This is my son, Riley. And I quickly tossed the baton the other way so that I wasn't on the spot. Yeah. And, and of course, I'm in, in the front of the bus, right? And I forget you guys are even back there. Uh, so for my listeners, right. let me just let me share with you my side of this, how this all went down. And, and Steve Wiley, by the way, who's um, who owns the uh, Lincoln Leadership Institute that runs this phenomenal course, Gettysburg. Uh, leadership course, which, uh, and Steve is going to be joining me on a, on a future episode here. And for my listeners, I think you'll find that episode very informative. But I used to bring, and this was when in my former role, when I used to work at that organization and was in charge of the management training, leadership development, I would bring about 30 or so managers with me every year to Steve Wiley's Gettysburg leadership course, which is a phenomenal course. And it was a closed session, meaning that I would always make sure we would book the event and had enough people where we didn't have any outsiders in. And it was one of those days I was working in, in my office. I was, I think, coming back from probably facilitating. I had some employees lined up outside my office. My phone is ringing, and it's Steve, and he's talking to me about I've got this, I've got this guy who's um, who's uh, re, you know retired or sold his business. He wants to come here with his son and. It was in one of those moments where I just said, okay, sure, Steve. And which is something that I would never do. I mean, he's asked me that in the past over the years, never once would even entertain it. For whatever reason, that day I said, sure. Totally forgot about it until we're on that bus ride. I didn't even know you guys were in the back of the bus, you and Riley, with your son. 
I get off the bus, and I think we're at uh, the the cemetery, which, which was one of the first stops. And of course, my boss, Kim, makes a beeline for me and starts drilling me, who is this guy and his son on the bus? And I think she used some additional colorful words in there. but <laughs> And I was like, yeah, I have no idea. Let me go look into it. Of course, I totally forgot. And now I'm thinking to myself, all right, how am I going to even manage this? I'm ready to go, you know, dig a grave right out there in the cemetery just to put myself in. And then, of course, things change dramatically. And you guys are all coming off the bus. And a couple of folks walk up to me, including Steve, and start sharing with me who you are and that you are a lung cancer survivor. And of course, Celgene was uh, a big cancer company. Uh, and I looked at my boss and I s- said, well, I just went from zero to hero in a matter of seconds. Because <laughs> you being there with your son changed the entire event. I mean, it, it was almost like you were part of the family immediately. And that- I felt very welcome. Yeah, and that, uh, again, happened uh, eight, nine years ago. And again, I, you and I talk about this all the time. Can't explain why, why I said yes, or, but for whatever reason, um, that put us on a course that kept us in contact for many years. Some things are bigger than us, Rob. Yeah. No, it's very, again, I don't like to overuse the word serendipitous, but it definitely was, and for both sides. And I, I'm i in contact with probably, I'm going to guess, 30 people still that were in that group. You know, many I'm very close to, as you know. Yeah, the, the, entire, um, the entire approach changed dramatically after... Uh after that was revealed. I mean, I'm sure there's a leadership lesson in there somewhere. I don't know. We, you and I have been trying to figure that out. But you It's know, called taking a risk. I guess, you know, maybe there are times where you, know? you, you think you think what might be a bad decision ends up, you have to look for what are the opportunities within it. Um, either way, yeah. uh, it was the best, um, best mistake I ever made in my life, if that makes sense. Oh, Rob. Yes. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me. Well, I appreciate you coming on the jam session. We are out of time, but I appreciate you sharing your your journey, your story. I think you are an inspiration, and I have no doubt that my listeners appreciate you coming on. Thanks again, Randy. Very pleased to have been here, and I very much appreciate you, Rob. And I think this is a great venue that you're taking to help people improve their personal and professional lives. Thanks again. Thanks so much for listening in today. If you're enjoying the podcast, then click the subscribe button, leave a review, and I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of the Leadership Jam Session Podcast.